Well, friends, I'd like to direct your attention to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. Mark 12, 38 to 44 is our text this morning. And uh, as we turn there, I do want to let you know, speaking of what Greg said about um, weeping with those who weep, I just um, heard word even during the service from our brother uh, Vasily Falenko that uh, just yesterday his wife Antonina had a younger brother living in Russia who died unexpectedly. Uh, was it a heart, did you say it was a heart uh, issue that he had? Um, so as you can imagine, Antonina is uh, just greatly sorrowing for her brother. So as I pray for our sermon um, and pray for what we're about to do together, we do want to lift up our sister Antonina and her whole family. The Lord would be glorified in showing mercy to her in, in her sorrow. Um, let me then do that. Let me, let me open us in prayer, and then I'll read our text and go from there. Oh, Father, we look to you with uh, the, the grief of our sister Antonina and other family members who are reeling and, um, and sorrowing over the, the loss of, of their, their loved one, her brother. Lord, we pray that you draw near to her in mercy in particular and other family members. We pray that you'd make your love in Christ real to them, that your spirit would uh, pour out upon them the, the, the realization of your great love, even through the tears and sorrow. And we pray that the hope of glory that awaits your people and the new creation that Christ is bringing would be as sweet as ever in their hearts. Uh, give them hope in these things that, that Christ has accomplished and the grace that he's yet to bring. And be glorified in the lives of all who are affected. And Lord, as we look to your word together and, and um, hear what you have to say to us out of Mark 12, we pray that you'd lift up Jesus Christ before us. We pray that you'd grant me a true and wise words to speak. And we pray that you grant us all ears to hear, discernment and softness of heart, so that we can see the glory of Christ by your spirit and we can understand the things that you're saying to us. We pray that you would shape our lives by your word, that you would bring about faith where it is not, that you would bring about uh, ongoing maturity and purification, that you'd keep us and that you'd be preparing us for glory in Christ. Do the works that you know uh, our souls need as you shepherd us along. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 12, verses 38 to 44. And he is Jesus here. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we're choosing what brands of items to buy, there's always a trade-off that we're making between cost and quality. 
we're always negotiating this, and, and you can often relate to you kind of going, how nice of a thing do I need here? How much money do I have or do I want to spend on this item? Think of clothing or shoes or tools or office supplies or kitchenware, anything like that. Now, whatever kind of product you're looking for, you can usually find a dirt cheap version of it somewhere, made in a sketchy factory somewhere in the developing world and shipped over to be sold on the slimmest of margins. And sometimes that's good enough. That's what you need. It's not going to be fancy, but the price sure is easy to handle. And uh, sometimes that's, that's the thing you want. But there are also nicer versions of things out there. And other times you decide that this particular item is going to be important enough that you would benefit from higher quality. Maybe it's a cast iron skillet that you're going to use twice a day forever. And it's just, you're going to use it all the time. I want a nice cast iron skillet. Maybe it's a pair of shoes you want to be able to resole indefinitely. You want something that's going to be able to take a beating over the years, over the decades maybe, and still last. So you shop for quality. In that case, you're willing to pay the price for what you're getting. You know it's going to cost significantly more, but it's worth it. And do you know what I love? I love finding a little-known brand that sells things that are pretty high in quality, but yet for reasonable prices. Not the cheapest you can find, but still surprisingly good prices for a very high-quality item. They're often brands that you've never really heard of, kind of off the beaten path. Isn't that nice to find those? And uh, you can tell when you're getting an item of substance, often just by holding it in your hand or, or starting to use it. You can tell this is well-made. You, know, you can just say, this is a well-constructed item. It's made of good materials. This is going to last. This is not just a really cheap thing. It's, it's not the lowest price, but it's not going to break the bank either. Conversely, one of the most depressing and frustrating things to find is items out there that are priced like they're high in quality, but they're not. And usually it's a brand that's well-known, and they're kind of trading on their reputation, on the residual fumes of their reputation. And people think that they're good, and then, but you go, they've really suffered in quality, but they're still charging a lot. That's really disappointing. It's very uh, unsatisfying to, to wind up with one of those things. See, substance, the real quality of something, always beats showiness, doesn't it? The brand name can be so ephemeral. It doesn't necessarily indicate that there's good quality. It's the real substance of a thing that really has value. And uh, people who put in the work and the care, people who put in good materials to make a product right, we can recognize that's a beautiful thing. Even when a lot of people overlook it and they're rushing to some of the more popular brands that are making bad things. Well, what's the point of all this? Well, today we're going to learn... That in the spiritual realm, it's also the case, the superiority of substance over showiness. Of the, the reality of what something really is over the external label. Turns out that's superior in God's economy as well. The main point of what we have to see in God's word this morning is that quiet devotion to God is worth more than all the world's trophies. Quiet devotion to God is worth more than all the world's trophies. And what we're going to do is move through the text in three steps. We're first going to just look at it and, and ask, sort of look at the text itself. What's it saying? Then secondly, we'll go back and we'll consider its doctrine. What is God teaching us here? And then thirdly, we'll consider application. What is God meaning to do in our lives through what he says? So first, the text, what does it say? 
Then doctrine, what does it mean or what God is teaching? And finally, application. What is God meaning to do in our lives? So first, let's look at what the text says. We can break it down by first in verses 38 to 40, a warning. And then in verses 41 to 44, an example. So the first is two little scenes here. The first scene is a warning. And now it it says that, that he's teaching. And we know based on the context, he's teaching in the Jerusalem temple. And he's just withstood a series of challenges and disputes going all the way back to chapter 11, verse 27. Various people coming to him with challenge questions, challenging him, trying to trip him up. And the last account we saw was actually his challenge question against the scribes. This is a class of scholarly experts in the law of God. They've been in conflict with Jesus all the way going back to chapter 3 of Mark. They recently challenged him. Again, I said there was a series of disputes. They were involved in 11.27, they challenged him. In 12, verse 12, they challenged him. And uh, they're going to keep on opposing him. They're going to be part of moving him to the cross, getting him put on the cross in later chapters. But in in the, the account that we looked at last week, verses 35 to 37, it was the scribes that Jesus himself challenged in verse 35 with his, his, his kind of rhetorical question about the Christ. So Jesus issues a warning in verse 38, a watch out, beware of the scribes. And what he means here by watch out is not so much don't let them get you, but don't let them influence you. Watch out for their influence that they might have over you. And he characterizes them with four expressions of pride, of spiritual pomp, of glory-seeking showiness. Four uh, expressions of that pride, that external uh, showiness, and then two consequences of it. And, and notice in verse 38, he talk, this is very important, he talks about what they like. They like to walk around. This is a word desire. And some of the things that happen, some of the ways that the scribes are treated are not in themselves sinful. For, say, for instance, someone to give a, a seat of honor to somebody. It's not sinful to receive a seat of honor at a banquet. But what he's, he's zeroing in on is that this is the heart's desire of these people. They love this. They want this. The first expression of their spiritual showiness and pride is their long and distinct robes. And these showed their their membership in this distinct scribal class. They stood out very visually with these robes. And they love that. They love looking different. They love looking distinct. Everyone can tell who they are. The second expression is that they receive greetings in the marketplaces. People see them coming and they stop what they're doing and they'll sometimes rise and stand and, and out of deference as they watch them go by. Again, they, they, their hearts love that. They, they like being treated that way. The third expression in, in verse 39 is that they have the best seats in the synagogues. Uh, there were honored seats where these, these men would sit in front. They would be uh, set apart from the rest of the congregation facing, it'd be like, People sitting on the stage here during the service, uh, sitting on, up on the platform and facing the rest of the congregation. It's like this very clear, visually set off, we're in a different class than you. And they like that. Their hearts treasure that. The fourth expression of their pride is that, similarly, they love the seats of honor at banquets. They would often be invited to banquets. It was sort of like, hey, we've got a scribe coming to our banquet. They were sort of these spiritual celebrities. And again, they liked being treated that way. The people highly regarded the scribes and they they showered them with honor because of their devotion to studying God's scriptures. 
On the one hand, we can say, well, it's good that they seem to value Scripture so much that they value people who study it. But it's become very corrupt spiritually in the hearts of these scribes. Their hearts bask in this praise. They love it. They seek more of it. They want it. And this desire has two consequences that Jesus draws out in verse 40. The first is, it's what's happening now in Jesus' time. He says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These are probably related. The idea is probably that they are, these men are living on charitable gifts. They're sort of like, uh, we're set aside to, to pray, to make these prayers. We're these holy scribes. We study the scriptures and we pray. And you can support us and, and sort of be, uh, we, they live on charity. And then they'll make these big, long, showy prayers to kind of show off like that they're worthy of being funded, so to speak. And so it's this combination of kind of ostentation and showing off and then the exploitation of vulnerable persons in their donor base. Especially Jesus narrows in on widows. Widows were a very vulnerable group in this time, in Bible times. They had very little means to, to provide for themselves often. And so he's saying, you're exploiting these people that are in great danger of losing their houses as a result of you leeching off of their generosity. The second consequence is future, and it is very sobering. Jesus says in verse 40, they will receive the greater condemnation. He's exercising his prophetic role and declaring severe future judgment against these scribes. Now, why will their judgment be so severe? What is it about their sin in particular, about them in particular, that they ought to be especially concerned about the future judgment? Well, there are layers of heinousness about the sin that they're doing. One is that they're abusing spiritual authority. They're in these prominent positions as leaders of kind of stewarding the scriptures for the people, and they're using that authority for themselves. That's one problem with their sin. Another layer of what makes it so heinous is that they're blaspheming God by turning devotional practices into hypocritical means for profit. That word pretense is very damning in verse 40. For a pretense they make long prayers. They abuse what should be a worship devotional practice toward God as a way to bilk people out of money. And finally, another layer to the heinousness of their sin and why they deserve such great judgment is that they are abusing a vulnerable group, widows, who, as you read through the Old Testament, they are objects of God's special care throughout the Bible because of their vulnerability. We heard about this in a couple of different occasions in Isaiah 1 when we read earlier. For instance, verse 23, we heard, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. The fatherless and the widows are often paired together throughout Scripture as this especially vulnerable group who have been bereaved of a father and a husband. And it's kind of an index of injustice. How do you treat these people? So that's another layer of why what the scribes are doing is so evil and worthy of judgment. So that's the warning. Watch out for these men. Then in verses 41 to 44, Jesus moves on and also gives an example. He gives an example. And the narrative here pivots to a new scene in the same setting. They're still in the temple. They're in the same place. But now the story, and what the story does is it kind of hinges from one scene to the other on this concept of widows. You remember how verse 40 he talked about they essentially exploit widows. And then the next story is really about a widow. 
Um, so this widow is, is actually a positive example. Uh, and you might recall that the context we're in is it's the Passover week. And the city is filled with pilgrims who've come from all around to Jerusalem for the festival. And people are coming to the temple now and giving free will offerings. There's a bunch of, uh, of, of boxes where people would deposit their free will offerings. This is not offerings that are required by the law. These are just gifts out of people's desire to give to God. And it funds the temple. It funds the activities of worship in the temple. And most eyes, as we read about in, in verse 41, the scene is that there's all these people coming, giving um, offerings, and there are rich people putting in lots of money, putting in big, probably visibly big offerings. And it's possible that this was kind of a spectator sport in the temple, that people kind of sit around and it's like, oh, that guy put a lot in, you know, and everything. We don't know that, but it's possible that was just something kind of part of the festivities, of kind of seeing people put their offerings in. Um, it's possible that people liked being seen put... Uh, putting in a lot. Most eyes would naturally draw toward those large and impressive gifts. But what's practically invisible in a setting like this is the simple and quiet widow's gift. That this is what stands out to Jesus in verse 42, that this widow, what a contrast, these people putting in these large sums. And then this widow, this unassuming poor woman who comes and puts in two small copper coins. These are the smallest denominations available of coinage. It's, I think each one would be the weight of like a grain of barley. It's a tiny, tiny little nugget of copper. And uh, she's a widow. She's vulnerable. She's poor. It says explicitly she's probably unable to comfortably meet her needs. And yet here she is. And she's being generous enough to put in, she could just put in one coin. She, put, she could put in nothing. Or she could reason to herself, well, I want to give God something. I'll give him one of my tiny little coins. But she does more than that. She gives two. And Jesus seems to get kind of excited about this. You can kind of, you can kind of see, you can kind of imagine his tone. when He calls his disciples. He says, guys, 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 come here, come here. In verse 43, he goes, I want you to see this gal and what she's doing. He calls them together. Because this is an object lesson. This woman's gift is exemplary. And what he's saying is that in Jesus' opinion, Jesus' esteem, this woman's gift surpasses all the others. He says, truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. That might be a surprising statement, so he explains in verse 44 why. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything, all that she had to live on. It's not about the absolute quantity that impresses Jesus. It is the depth of commitment. It's proportionality, given what they have. And hers is greater. She dug deep to give. In her case, what it means is that she will do without today's provision of food. This doesn't mean she, will, she has absolutely nothing ever. It probably refers to today's living. Today's uh, money that she might need for her daily provision. Now she won't have it. She'll probably go without eating for a day because she gave this gift. So there we have the warning in our text about the scribes and then a positive example about the widow. Let's then press deeper into the story and ask the question again, what is God teaching us through these things? So in our text, it's really important that what Jesus is doing is he's juxtaposing, putting next to each other and contrasting two different ways of measuring spiritual value. Two different ways of measuring spiritual value. There's the scribes way. And then there's the widow's way. 
So let's look at them both in turn, kind of parallel to what we already did. First, we'll look at the scribe's way. What is the scribe's way of measuring spiritual value? This is a way that craves recognition from others. And it's similar to what we've seen previously from Jesus' own disciples. You may recall as we've walked through Mark, they've been arguing at various times about which one of them is the greatest. Back in chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, they were literally disputing about who's the greatest. They got embarrassed because Jesus heard them. Hey, what were you guys talking about? Um, Not a good look. They, They recognized that. And then that dispute and that desire to be thought of as the greatest caused them to despise later on in chapter 10 little children that people brought to Jesus. And they thought, no, 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 he's too important. And really kind of what's implied, well, we're all too important as his followers. We're not doing little kids here. We we don't have time for that. Jesus is like, oh, you're totally totally losing the plot here. I'm, I'm here for little people. It's a very similar point that Jesus is making here. The scribe's way is that way of seeking honor, seeking recognition and glory in this world. And the scribe's way is godless for three reasons. The first reason it's godless is because it robs praise from God. It robs glory that belongs to God. It is rightfully his. The second reason why the scribe's way is godless is because, and we we touched on this, it exploits devotional practices. Can you just stop and consider how corrupt and evil this is? To turn the worship of God into a means for leveraging praise from others. As though God were a means to a greater end of man's applause. That's functionally how how they're viewing it. The praise of God is a nice tool for getting what we really want, which is the praise of others. Jesus warns against that very exchange in Matthew 6. It's kind of all over that whole chapter of Matthew 6, but you see it right there in verse 1. When he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You have a choice. You're going to do these devotional practices for God, for God's pleasure, for God's reward. Or you'll do it for the praise of men. Beware of making that trade. That's what these men are doing. The third reason that their way of viewing spiritual value is godless is that it displays a practical atheism. It is a complete lack of faith. It lives only for what is immediate and tangible in this world. The, the, the tangible goods of people thinking well of me. And there's no place for living for the invisible things by faith. Things like God's pleasure and, and God's future reward. It is a faithless way of living. So we see that the scribe's way of doing things is godless. But it's more than that. It's also loveless. Pride is a monster. And pride, what it does is you try to be a big guy. To become a big guy, you feed on little guys. Pride always needs little guys to kind of fuel its rise and and to sustain its size. And that's what happens here. When these men are sponging glory and praise off of others, that has to come from somewhere. All the attention and glory and adoration and wealth that rightfully belongs to God instead are getting channeled to this guy to make him a big guy that he wants to be. He's too selfish to stop and consider, certainly to stop and tremble at the thought of what damage he's doing to these vulnerable people. He doesn't care about that. He's loveless. So he's godless and loveless. And finally, it's also senseless. In view of the judgment that's to come, what kind of madness is it to trifle with the righteous and fierce judgment of God? To play around with worship. 
just so we could get people's praise for us. What kind of fire are these fools playing with? It's senseless because it mocks God. It pretends that God will not cause sowing to lead to reaping. Just as we read in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. These people are mocking God. They are deceived, thinking that there won't be consequences for treating God in such a blasphemous way. They're well described by the words of Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. It's utter madness and folly to be like these scribes, to use the things of God to leech praise from men. Now, again, we've seen some of these same impulses in Jesus' own disciples previously in Mark's gospel. We have come face to face with the uncomfortable truth that we, we might want to say, oh, this is for those villains out there, those scribes, those, those especially evil people. It's actually very normal to the human condition to seek this, to have a heart that wants these things, praise and glory from others. Any of us, because of our sin nature from birth, might easily slip into these very same tendencies if we had the same opportunities to do so. The point of this isn't to just point out how utterly wicked and other these men are, but to say this is an impulse that is very accessible to all of us. So that's the scribe's way of evaluating spiritual value. The scribe's way of measuring what is spiritually valuable. Now, in contrast, we have the widow's way. The widow's way. The widow's way exemplifies a way of valuation that is the polar opposite from the scribe's. Now, in verse 41, there is no accusation that Jesus or the narrative makes against the people bringing large gifts. The point of this story is not to condemn the people who bring the large gifts. They're not bad guys. There's no connection necessarily between them and the scribes. Their function is kind of as a foil and a background against which the woman's gift of surprising spiritual value kind of shines so brightly. Because these are the folks that we would expect, just in our natural assumptions, we would expect these to be the people whose gifts are the most meaningful. These are the people, for instance, that you want to meet. You want to go shake their hands. And maybe if, if you're like one of the priests, you want to go like, I want to meet that guy, form a relationship. You know, it's good, good to have good donor relations. Maybe they'll be more likely to give gifts like this in the future. These are the people to pay attention to. They're worth more because of what they're giving. But the story has this twist. That Jesus' eyes are drawn to a hidden beauty. And that is the humble and quiet gift of this poor widow that's just so easily overlooked by everyone else. Now, in recent years, some have interpreted this text in a way that makes the woman a tragic illustration of the, the scribe's predatory exploitation. And I can see in view of verse 40 how, how they get there. Because we just heard that the scribes abuse widows. They exploit them financially. They, they rob them of their homes somehow. And people have suggested that this woman giving so deeply to the offering box is an example of basically she's, she's fallen for this predatory uh, exploitation. But Jesus' emphasis is not, and when he speaks to it, when he interprets what he sees here, he does not pity the woman. He praises her. He commends her for making a willing choice. He does not hold her up as a victim here. He holds her up as a hero. And what Jesus commends is how the woman impoverished herself by her giving. What she sounds like is the Macedonian believers that we meet later on in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 
1 to 5. And Paul writes this about them. It's very similar. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is a remarkable quote from the Bible, that these people are begging Paul for the favor of being able to give generously out of their poverty. Every element of that washes over. It's like this battery of waves going like overwhelming. This is shocking generosity. And it's very similar to the woman. Is the woman here buying God's favor with money? Is she kind of buying her way into God's kingdom? No, she's just like the later Macedonians. She's displaying a heart of total devotion to God. Like Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. That is such a good encapsulation of what's going on in this woman's heart. She gave herself to the Lord. This is an all-in commitment that is exactly the kind of trust that Jesus has been calling forth in the Gospel of Mark from those who would follow him. You may recall back in chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This image of taking up a cross indicates that Jesus has your whole life, like you're taking up an execution instrument to deny yourself, to die in a sense with him. It's not buying or earning anything. It's a complete yielding of yourself to him in trust. You might remember that that call to discipleship in Mark 8 followed stemmed directly from the revelation of who Jesus is. On the lips of Peter and then on, on his own words, the exalted Christ, the divine son of man, who suffers as a servant. So here's the underlying logic of how this is supposed to work in our lives. It starts with Jesus. Jesus came to be a king who shockingly suffers as a servant. And to give his life as a ransom for others, as he says in chapter 10, verse 45. This posture of Christ and this work of Christ does, it does two things. It creates for us both an assurance and an obligation. It creates an assurance. What, what assurance is this? That he did everything to save us who believe. He did everything to deliver us into his kingdom. He gave himself as a ransom for us so that we could be lavished eternally with God's heavenly rewards. So, I can afford to give up everything I have to follow him. I can afford to give myself to the Lord, in the, in the words of Paul about the Macedonians. Because he has given me everything. I can put my pennies in the box. I'm free from the kind of grasping, either at money or to give the scribes at praise and prestige, any kind of grasping in this world, I can give it all up. It's a permission, it's a release, it's a freedom. Christ has done it all for me. 
it creates assurance. His coming as a suffering servant also creates an obligation. And that is, if my king came to occupy such a lowly position, I cannot expect any more for myself if I'm going to follow him. Again, he told his disciples in chapter 8, verse 34, take up your cross and follow me, he says, as he's on his way to his death. Deny yourself. There is an assurance in Christ having done it all for us and releasing us from having to keep things for ourselves, but then there's an obligation. Follow after Christ. Because of what he came to do and because of who he is, we can afford to do what we must, which is to follow him with a faith that produces total devotion. This text prioritizes inner substance over outer show. It exalts, in the words of 1 Peter 3, 4, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how God measures spiritual value. The hidden person of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit, total devotion to the Lord. This is the substance I talked about earlier. Again, you buy an item, you, you know, you're, you're, you're flipping it over in your hands, you're feeling it, you're looking at it, and you're going, this is not a shoddily made thing. This is substance. This is not just marked up to fool me. This isn't just a brand label. This is real substance. This is how God sees spiritual value. He cares about the substance of our hearts. That's always what he's looking at. He's not looking at outward religious acts. We saw this also in Isaiah 1. It's all over the prophets. It's like, your outward religious acts coming from a hypocritical heart are disgusting to me. Stop it. It doesn't do anything for me. I actually hate it. God cares about the heart. And because this woman's devotion to the Lord was secret and genuine, the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward her. So already we're hearing some obvious clues toward application. So let's go there. We've seen what the text says. We've seen what God is teaching through it. Let's now turn to ask the application question. What is God meaning to do in our lives through his word? And the answer that we'll, we'll look at is threefold. First, it's warning. Second, it's welcoming. And third, it's a well done. Warning, welcoming, and well done. First thing he's doing is warning. And this really operates on two levels. The first level of warning is against those who might be inclined to be like the scribes themselves. It is exceedingly dangerous to be the scribe type here. And Jesus is saying, if you're tempted to be like this person who's gobbling up praise and honor in the eyes of others, this text is for us from Jesus. Bright red lights flashing in our face saying, stop, turn back. Maybe we're already doing this. Saying, stop, repent. Don't be this person. Now, this sin is especially dangerous for people like me. I realize it's kind of the irony of getting up in front of you all and talking about the danger of kind of showiness, spiritual showiness. This is like really red alert for people like me, people with positions of authority and public recognition. People get up front and talk a lot. This is an occupational hazard, and it is subtle and so dangerous how the desire for praise from men can sneak into our motivations. And the heart issue can be subtle, but the fruit can be deadly. Because if we go down this road, the people, y'all, that we are supposed to serve become mere grist for the mill for feeding our image and our platform. That is a scary thought. 
And this shows up in many ways. Um, I think of all the avenues we have today for brand creation and platform building today. Uh, social media presence. This is so much the spirit of the age. Building a brand, building an image. Church publicity materials can even subtly communicate these things. What, what are we conveying to the world about who we are? Even the way we present ourselves. Um, it's good to like look decent. You know, we don't want to put pictures up on our church website that look really awkward or anything. But you, you know what I mean. You've seen the way Christians and churches can kind of market themselves. And you can tell sometimes that there is, they're slipping into this. We're going to look really good in the eyes of men. It's a very active temptation. So I would say I would ask you to pray for your pastors. Pray for those in leadership positions in our church that our hearts would be, on the one hand, grateful for the affirmation and encouragement we receive. It's sometimes really helpful, I will say. We can be very discouraged in the work sometimes. It's very helpful for God's people to say, that was helpful, thank you. Um, but on the other hand, that the Lord would guard us against craving praise from men and women, as though that were our treasure, that were our prize in ministry. Pray for the Lord to search and purify our hearts and guard us against this. Anyone who would aspire to an office of elder or deacon, any kind of leadership position, beware. Just be fighting this already. You're, the, the idea of what is your heart doing with the praise of others? So that's one level of warning that the scribes or potential scribes. The other level of warning is toward everyone else. Beware of being influenced by the scribe types. That's kind of the primary warning Jesus is giving to the people. Saying, watch out for those guys. Again, don't let them influence you. And the details are different, but we are a lot like the people in Jesus' day. We live in a social environment that rewards and incentivizes self-promotion. I just said, we got social media as a really uh, key place for this. It is the spirit of our age, even in kind of spiritual and religious space. Did you really do that thing unless, if you didn't post a photo of yourself doing it? You know, that, that good work. Uh, did, you re did it really happen if there was no Instagram post over it? How many likes did it get? Um, and just beware of letting the influencers, do you know what I mean? The people who are kind of out there to be seen have too much of an influence on you. And there are many Christian influencers who are maybe often teaching good things, but they're playing this kind of attention game. They want influence. They want to be seen and praised. And I'm not here to look at everyone's heart and discern what everyone's motives are. I don't, other people's hearts are very hard to discern. But I'm just saying, notice the people who seem to be engineering recognition and platform and praise. These are not people to aspire to be like. Resist holding them up as models for your spiritual aspiration. It's the quiet people that you, you, you find it easy to not even notice. They're the people to keep an eye on. Of course, this exists in all kinds of spaces beyond, of course, internet, social media. It happens just in our life, face-to-face -face body interactions as well. But the point is, mark out who it is that seeks praise from men and avoid their path. Don't let them influence you. Don't aspire to be like them. This text not only warns, but it also welcomes. That's the second word of application. It welcomes. And what we have here is an evergreen, always relevant message of welcome. And the cool thing about it is it's good for everyone. Whether you're an unbeliever, you don't even know Christ yet, or you're a mature Christian already, the welcome here is that you may already be in a prominent position like the scribe. You can have a heart that seeks man's approval too much. You can be someone, again, who, who doesn't even 
you're not even a Christian. You don't even know Christ. But the point is we all have hearts that naturally seek approval from others. We seek praise. We seek glory that belongs to God. That's a common danger for all of us. So the welcome here is to come and lay down your long robes, so to speak, to give them up, to renounce your natural craving for approval and applause from men. And in its place, by faith, to know the servant king who came to ransom your soul from sin and death and to bring you into his kingdom where you enjoy God's lavish and free favor eternally. It is so much better than what you would have to give up. It's so much better to be known by God this way. Some of us may need to repent of having hearts like these scribes, of wanting to to show off our, our spiritual goods, so to speak. If that's the case, if God today is calling you to let go of something and repent, what motivation will effectually move you to say no to that counterfeit and say yes to, the, to imitating this widow's quiet substance of devotion to God? What is it that's going to grip your heart? It's not going to be primarily shame. And although Jesus does threaten judgment, it's not the threat of judgment that's going to be the strongest motivation either. The most powerful motivation to get rid of the way of the scribe and to pursue the way of the widow is a clear view of God's lavish grace for you in the gospel of Christ. That's how it worked for the Macedonians. We already heard about their famous eagerness to give. They are so eager to give. They're poor. They still want to give anyway. Please let us give. What underlies that enthusiastic sacrifice to the Lord and to others for the Lord's sake? They wanted to give to the Jerusalem church because of their their famine. What underlies, what powers that attitude? It's the way that Jesus has already impoverished himself to make us rich in salvation. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, just a few verses after what I already read. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's the incarnation. For your sake he became poor, he became a man, though he was God, is kind of what Paul means here. So that you by his poverty might become rich. You know that grace You've received it. It's yours. And so now what that does is that's jet fuel for sacrificial giving. That's jet fuel for releasing those those trappings, those, those trophies. Receive his grace and rest in his finished redemption for you. And that is what will pry those, those treasures out of your clenched fingers. Slowly over time, you'll release it and say, no, the grace of God in Christ is so much more precious than whatever I have to give up. Jesus' grace frees us to forget about the human audience. Now, we need one another. We need one another for accountability and for encouragement. Notice Jesus is talking to all his disciples. There's a communal aspect here. But in terms of our audience, who we live for, whose praise we want, Jesus' grace in the gospel frees us to forget about the human audience and to do things for God that no other human soul may ever know about. Think about it. Doing things that are painful and costly and hard that God knows about and maybe nobody else will ever know about. And you can just not tell anyone. You can do that. Why would you do that? Simply because of how beautiful and worthy God is. Simply because of how rich he's been in grace to us in Christ. 
we, we can, it can generate this spontaneous response of wanting to give of ourselves to him sacrificially and liberally and to even take delight in the fact that maybe it's just between me and God. No one else heard about that one. That's what the gospel can do. The gospel is the key on which this whole thing turns. What propels the do from the heart level is not an external law written in stone. It's Jesus is done on our behalf. And feeling This is what we pray for. Pray for this and meditate to feel in our bones deep inside that sense of I have received so much grace that Christ became poor for me so that I might become rich. So we've seen the text doing two things in our lives. It warns us and then it welcomes us. What's the third thing it does? It says, well done. That's essentially what Jesus is saying about the widow, not to her, but about her. He's saying, this is well done, guys. This is a master class in sacrificing and giving offering to God. Some of you are already living like the widow. Some of you are doing remarkable sacrificial things for God and others for God's sake. And I'm talking about, this is again a free will offering. Things that aren't strictly required for obedience to Christ. Things above and beyond the mere requirement of God's commands. Free will offering. And the beauty of that, of what you're doing, is that I don't know who you are. <laughs> That's kind of the point. We don't really know who you are, who's doing these things. It's kind of cool that we get things that leak out in the, body, in the life of the body where someone will say something that somebody else did for them, and it's like, That's amazing. They didn't, they didn't sound a trumpet before, and they just did it. Maybe the other person was just wanting to give honor and give thanks for what, what the ministry done to them. But I know this stuff is happening among us. And I don't know who I'm addressing. That's the good part of it. That's okay. Your reward is not the recognition of others. It's the sheer joy of yielding yourself to this beautiful and blessed God. Now in this life, that's joy enough, but also his eternal rewards for you in the age to come. So if there's something like that that you've already done, or if there's something like that that you're in the midst of doing, Jesus is saying through this text to you this morning, well done. He sees, God sees. God takes delight in what you've done. Your heavenly father sees every humble little coin that you've put into that box in willing and glad worship, and it delights him. And if you're considering a certain action of service before you, maybe there's something costly that, again, you wouldn't receive a lot of recognition uh, no one would ever know about it. You're thinking, should I do it? You're counting the cost. Should I give? Should I serve in this widow-like way? Let the Lord's word be telling you this morning to do it. Do it. Don't sweat the cost. God will delight in it. You won't regret it. You can enjoy the freedom that Jesus has won for you. And you can use it just to pour yourself back out to him in worship. Quiet devotion to God is worth more than all the world's trophies. We know from the the realm of material things, again, in retail, we know what it's like to realize you have something real and substantial in your hands, something solid and well-made. That's a satisfying, good thing to identify. How much better in the spiritual realm when God sees true devotion in the heart working its way out into our actions, but not, not done for an audience of anyone else. Because Jesus came to be a servant And Jesus came to lavish you with grace. You can live like this widow with joyful, cheerful, abundant, confident giving in every realm of your life, knowing that you're secure in God's hand. Let's pray. And then we will move to a time of observing the Lord's Supper together. 
Our God, we praise you for Christ's richness toward us. Though he was rich, he impoverished himself for our sake. He became a man so that he could identify with sinners, though he had no sin in himself, so that he could bear the cost and the wrath and the judgment of our sin, though he had done none himself. He could die as a ransom for others. You have been so rich and generous and merciful toward us in Christ, and not only in converting and and justifying our souls, but all the ongoing privileges and blessings of belonging to you in the covenant of Christ. The, the gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit to mediate your presence with us. And the promises of eternal glory with Christ. There's so many blessings that you've lavished upon us. And we pray that by these blessings you would continue to pry out of our hands. The, the selfish praise seeking impulses that reside in our hearts. And to instead help us to embrace this way of being all in, in devotion to you. Thank you that Christ is our Savior. And as we observe the Lord's table and remember his body and blood given for us, please assure us once again of the all-sufficiency of his work in the gospel for us. And if there's any in this room who have not yet trusted in him, we pray that you would show them in a very clear and distinct manner the corruption of their hearts in our sin nature that we all share. And you'd show them how beautiful it is to know Christ this way. And that they would turn to him even now in trust. In his name we pray, amen.